0: Um, So this is going to be completely unstructured and unprepared, Um, so apologies in advance, but um, I'll take kind of your guys' lead with what is um, interesting and where you have questions kind of in the space, on the technology, on the financial side, kind of on like the activity today. Um, I think the only person who sent me questions beforehand was Ben, um, which were more on the regulatory side. So we have at least some interest there um but i mean as financial engineers coming up there's so many different ways in which like the digital asset space touches um legacy finance that implicates you know job opportunities and just like the way in which finance and um macroeconomics are going um so there's kind of a lot of different angles that you could probably approach this from um, from A just from a disrupting of what the existing financial landscape looks like. Um, Cryptocurrency is essentially posing the first threat to banks in a long time. So they're all rethinking their models. They're having to first kind of compete with this wave of fintechs that we've seen. Um, So the squares and SoFi's um, of the space that don't necessarily have traditional banking licenses or at least not at the beginning but functionally operate by giving financial services to clients. Um, And the banks in for many different reasons have become cumbersome and haven't innovated and their technology is very legacy. But at the same time, um, it's kind of like that double-edged sword. The reason why they're still here and why they haven't been disrupted is because the regulatory space is so complicated. They're super monopolized in a lot of ways. Um, And you know, the, yeah, the regulatory cost, the compliance cost, the cost of scaling up, all these things have, are such high barriers to entry, um, which is probably why it's solidified for so long. Um, so that's kind of a ramble on just how digital asset space is causing disruption in finance just by its presence being there. Um, but then there's the interactions between basically the decentralized you know, cryptocurrency space, but also the decentralized finance space or DeFi space um, directly competing or interacting with finance. So kind of, there's many different layers at which to think about this. Um, But I think it's pretty clear that uh, there's a lot of disruption happening and that it's important to pay attention to um, where, what, where things are and where they're going. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, what I wanted to say is, um, uh, I think, out of the students, right, I, I, I'm, I'm going to think that maybe a third of them, and, and in a third, I'm thinking Marcella, Brian, and Stephen, have started and, and working on some of these type of projects. And then I would expand uh, to, um, you know, Ben and Michael and Kaisu, who have worked with you. But it's kind of half of the population. Where the other half are probably thinking, uh, you know, okay, well, blockchain, bitcoins, whatever, and I could keep on going, you know, either for a bank or for whatever, uh, or for your typical financial institution. But what you're saying and what I've seen is that, you know, this blockchain is not going. It's not. It's not its own little. it's, It's expanding. You know. Uh, everywhere uh, and if you don't if you don't keep up with it in terms of jobs right you and you could end up working on you know wall street for 10 years and then they're going to say you know what we're not doing any more uh, compliance uh, we're going to outsource this to some firm we're not going to be... uh, you know what i mean it could be, it could be a huge thing in the future like things that we've seen in the past uh, like um, you know, the iPhone and, and BlackBerry, right? Uh was just fine. my BlackBerry. was great. And then then he brought up all these uh, these apps, which yeah. who cares about apps? Well, guess what? Uh, it's gone now. So my biggest concern for the students is I want to make sure that they don't lock themselves into it because of what they see. They need to be forward-looking. And that's why I think it's important for you to tell them, you know, guys, watch out. This is not just right? There's something fundamental going on. Is this stuff going on with companies themselves, like JP Morgan and Stanley?
0: Yeah. So banks are are now, there's kind of like the multi-stages of how the like very legacy um, traditional financial institutions have responded to crypto and blockchain. First, there was just kind of ignoring of it, then dismissing of it um, and, you know, making fun of it. And then there was like this whole narrative of blockchain, the technology underneath um, digital assets is interesting to them because they, it can help them improve their business, but they don't care about Bitcoin. So the saying from a lot of the uh, heads of banks was like blockchain, but not Bitcoin. But then now recently it's been, you know, they've kind of realized I think that they need to catch up and, you know, they're playing a different ballgame. Um, in a lot of ways, it's like, a, you know, it's a, there's network effects at play here and there's just like paradigm shifts of um, the infrastructure. So, I mean, if you think about going from traditional taxi cabs to Uber, where, you know, kind of everybody can work within a single framework uh, rather than like a top-down hierarchy, that's massively disruptive. But imagine if Uber, which is still a private company, um, was just a protocol, you know, it's a complicated protocol, but basically the same thing as sending a text message that would disrupt even Uber. And we're kind of seeing those like banking is getting hit by both that wave of like the Uber type companies that are taking advantage of the new tech um, and being able to basically decentralize things for their users. And then also just protocol level or infrastructure level um, disruption at the same time. Um, So yeah, excuse me. Does anybody have any um, kind of like very large scale um, topics or questions that they wanna ask? So more from like the macroeconomic or financial industry as a whole um, side of things? Are you seeing hedge funds trade um, uh, like with the CME futures and Bitcoin a lot? Are you seeing a lot of that or do you think a lot of money be made there? Yeah. So on the trading side, there's massive, massive amounts of growth in terms of liquidity, and just volumes that are happening and also products that are being offered and used. Um, I think like, Three or so years ago, we started seeing kind of like the first institutional grade um, trading firms coming up. So, the likes of backed CME futures, as you mentioned, um, kind of coming on board. So, a lot of players who had built really successful um, trading venues like ICE, which is backed, backed, for example, um, all came into the picture because before that, it was, you know. A couple of retail-focused exchanges that didn't follow any of the standards that you see in finance with naming conventions and um, security reviews and things. Um, So now, so now those are pretty much all in place, and we've seen the volume pick up massively. So personally, like I've worked with hedge funds um, which have gone from trading only commodities to trading a little bit of crypto and dipping their toes in to now being full time only, only trading crypto. Um, and the vol the volatility is, you know, it gets slammed down a lot in the news because um of like the the currency or settlement layer store of value narrative gets disrupted by something that's volatile. But traders obviously love that. So, you know, there's there's massive um both margins in terms of um volatility swings, but also massive margins in terms of um the disparities within the market and, and the opportunities that still exist for larger players to do arbitrage. So recently we saw like this spike two weeks ago, I think, or a week and a half ago, there was a massive like single tick candle down and then it kind of continued, obviously it tried keep kept coming down, but especially on Ethereum, I think we went from something like we are hovering around 17 or 1800 and on one exchange, Kraken, which is a spot and derivative exchange, um, there was it, which is you know a U.S.-based company that's highly regulated and things, but pretty illiquid. There was a massive tick down that liquidated. It was it probably like went down to seven hundred dollars or something, um, in like a matter of a couple minutes, where that didn't happen necessarily all over the market. So it liquidated all the positions on that platform and then caused this ripple effect on other platforms. Um, and you still see stuff like that happening, you know, just this week.
2: You, you said that happened two weeks ago?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think it was last week or two weeks ago. You think but that's, yeah, that's because
2: of what was going on with, with GME and AMC and them, or is that?
0: it's hard to say exactly like to what degree things have influenced each other. Um, I think that there's been like this massive, um, the GME AMC GameStop thing is like um, uh, important to bring up because it's brought a lot of people's attention towards trading and uh, financial concepts like short squeezes and stuff like that. Um, So there probably is quite a bit more retail interest coming in because of that, but also just independent from that how liquid is the is the lending market with most of these coins like can you short them okay can you like stuff like that is that um and where do you do that and what are sort of like transaction costs associated with that thing And is there any margin margin requirements uh, you know i'm curious about that sort of stuff like you know there's no yeah, so it, obviously it's not even a security yeah so that's a really good question and there's kind of like a multifaceted answer. Like it depends partly on your jurisdiction. It depends partly on like um, your technical expertise and your financial connections. So there's, there's kind of those institutional grade platforms, which I previously mentioned, which offer products that let you, you know, make, make do lending or, um, you know, take short side positions or um, enter into these contracts. So there's kind of that more typical side of things where there's just derivatives markets and things. Um, then there's central financial uh, lending platforms. So there's companies like um, BlockFi, based out of the uh, out of New York, I think, um, that participate in both um, retail lending and borrowing, and also institutional. So what they will do is they have like a an app where us customers can deposit funds collateralized in either bitcoin or stable coins or other cryptocurrencies um and they will lend those out to other people who are you know paying paying interest to essentially use this for financial activity um and then which which also by the way yield something like five to eight percent which is pretty crazy compared to what banks offer you right now with you know, zero to sometimes negative, um, you know, US dollar denominated yields, and which is, you know, tremendously low if you compare it to inflation. Um, Anyways, so there's kind of like those centralized companies which are offering these, you know, traditional lending services for either individuals or for companies at large. And then there's um, DeFi or decentralized finance, which is, the idea that you can just layer additional protocols on top of these decentralized platforms and basically construct um, via these smaller building blocks of code, the entire applications or the entire um, transactions involved in doing those kinds of activities like lending. So there's platforms like um, Aave, A-V-A-A, there's tons of different platforms that's just the first one that comes to mind um, that are built in this case on ethereum but also built on there's a binance chain and uh, tons of different blockchain networks that these things can be built on which essentially let individuals enter peer-to-peer contracts with each other for lending or in aggregate so all of us can deposit ethereum to an address which acts as a smart contract, which is basically like a liquidity pool where we all have our money in, and that acts as a automated market maker or it acts as a lending pool. And then we can generate yield in these kind of more complicated manners. That second option, DeFi, that's long-term, really exciting. Short-term, really um, complicated, nuanced, um, rapidly changing, insecure in a lot of ways. So those users are typically more technically sophisticated individuals or small kind of new firms that, you know, focus on only crypto. Um, And the transaction costs for that are massive because you have to pay costs to the on-chain. If it's on like Ethereum, for example, Ethereum is a very cumbersome uh, protocol. And when you make a really complicated transaction, like 20 of us, all pushing money into a pool and turning it into some token, which then gets used in lots of different ways. It's going to cost us like, you know, I don't know, a a few hundred to a few thousand dollars for initiating a single transaction like that. Um, so you need to be doing a really good job, but the yields are so much higher in a lot of cases that it kind of counteracts those, those risks. I don't know if that's a good answer to your question. But.
1: We had someone that came to see us not too long ago. Who was the name of uh, Lombardi? Uh, yeah, I think that was his name. Right? Yeah. What's the name of his company? Um,
3: I3Q. I3Q Asset Management up in, up in Vancouver? Yeah.
1: That's right. Nick, what, what that company does is, it, it's just what you're saying, is that they're coming in and they, um, they do... Um, They they offer financing to small. I mean, they're basically like a bank in a way. That's scary because they're able to offer better rates. uh, I guess because they don't have the infrastructure of the banks and uh, it's secured. And I mean, if you think about what's been happening, most.
0: I mean, a lot of it's been happening kind of underneath. Um, our noses because like we get, you know, an app that we view the bank through or we sit in a storefront, but with when we're trading on a brokerage like Vanguard and we're keeping our money in a bank like Chase or Bank of America or something. And that's like all that we operate with is kind of like these traditional massive entities, which custody our funds and do all of the financial services and, um, the amount of money, I mean, the banks have, have gotten huge. The, the amount of money that they make on rehypothecating our assets, lending them to each other and other massive companies, um, and the amount of money that they make off of creating capital and credit and issuing debt is insane. And there's been almost no value capture for the individuals. Like, I think rates have only gone down in my lifetime. I've basically never had a yield positive yielding bank account. Maybe I've made like cumulatively ten dollars or something, you know. Um, and on my when I'm using a brokerage like Vanguard to trade assets, the the majority of that business model has now become either selling of order flow or rehypothecation of um, custodial custodied assets for for making funds, and that's basically like the the heart of the securities industry. Um, which is kind of crazy it's it's the way that the incentives have become after our system has um, you know gone along in in this way that's created a situation like this for individuals where there's very little upside
1: um, but major upside for the institutions so basically it's our money but they take it this you know it's exactly what's going on with facebook and all the other guys where you know they've got a business model where they we are giving them the information, our information, and for free, and they use it. You know, to I mean, I mean, who owns the data? We should be paid for the information we give them instead of the other way around. So the advertiser, Jack, you were saying something last week. Um, you know, in fact, there was a uh, p- pretending to this a uh, red, uh, um, you know, Robin Hood and all that. Um, there was a, I think there was an article in Wall Street Journal that talks about you know, how Reddit actually makes its money, right? Um, because even though they don't charge anything to anyone, I guess they make the money through the order flow, right? So the, For Robinhood, yeah. For Robinhood. Yeah, so they they were kind of like the like
0: pioneers, or they were the ones who made this the new industry standard, Um was commission-free trading, which sounds, you know, what's the downside of that? Well, the downside is is that the business still needs to make money and the way that they make money instead of, you know, just taking a flat fee or a percentage fee off of every trade is by selling that trade to a high-frequency trader who then takes a little bit of money off of you and they get money through that relationship.
1: Um, The price that you're paying is not... Is, yeah
0: so you're not have... paying the best price you're you're necessarily being front run
2: <sighs> yeah it, go, going along with that um, i've done research this and and you know potential solutions to this and i think it was mark cuban tweeted something about how blockchain could be a potential solution to having uh, how do I, a more accessible um uh, order book, if that makes sense. Um, is there a viability to that idea? Could it be implemented soon? Because obviously, like the payment for order flow thing, has become a bit of an issue, um, especially for for a retail trader. Um, just if you think you could speak on that.
0: So one of those um, decentralized financial applications that I was mentioning before, I mentioned Ave, which is a lending platform. Another one of those um, types of applications are DEXs or decentralized exchanges. So there's um, Uniswap, SushiSwap. The, the interesting thing, and those are going to develop a lot more as time goes on. Um, the interesting thing about those is the data for them is completely open. And the, um, the way that trades are placed is not through the same uh, mechanism that we use today, where you have to use like a UI provided by a um a brokerage firm like Robinhood which then you know interacts with a self clearing um entity which then interacts with like the main settlement networks and you know there's kind of like these layers and you as the user are basically you know susceptible to any problems that happen because of that system because you have to use those services to interact. Whereas these decentralized exchanges interact on open protocols like on the Ethereum network. So you can audit not only kind of what's happening um, at the exchange level um, in terms of data. So you can see you know the number of people that are trading this pair and when they're trading, you can set up your own alerts, build your own data companies like Inca has. Um, and things like that to understand it rather than having to go to those companies or be those companies um, to get that data. And then the other part is that um, they're executing on a uh, basically a public infrastructure that anybody else could could build on, um, audit, modify, um, you know, set up alerts for. So it's kind of a theoretical answer, but it's, but it's also, you know, kind of existing now. Um, DEXs are currently slightly clunky especially the ones that are on there's kind of like this spectrum of more decentralized protocols and blockchains and less decentralized ones. And the more decentralized ones are, you know, more, more expensive to use more technically difficult sometimes. And the less decentralized ones are cheaper to use and um, maybe easier to use. So there's a little bit of a trade-off currently going on in the space. And there's a lot of like discovery happening now for how that's going to pan out is that a satisfying answer?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I got you there. Uh, I guess my, my question is my, my follow-up question on that is like, how is, how do we know that these exchanges will be liquid? You know, if, if you will, when they're as, uh, when they're not like we've known exchanges to be for the last hundred plus years or so, I mean, that's not to say that exchanges we've had forever don't have problems. I, I think that the, the market maker and specialist systems we've seen before are not necessarily great. Um, but like how do we, we know though that they did have liquidity when it was necessary for the most part. So like, how do you like answer that when you're operating a a more decentralized system, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So also two kind of different types of answers approaching that question from different sides. One is just that, um, the kind of base base infrastructure of these assets is so different than the types of securities and currencies and assets that you know all the infrastructure is built around traditionally so rehypothecation of bitcoin only the people who are involved in that activity can get hurt right because um kind of some of some of those systemic issues basically don't can't exist um in bitcoin or they can but only kind of co-localized to where the activity is uh, permuting. Does that make sense as just kind of one type of answer? Um, and then, uh, sorry, can you just refresh me on the, the question slightly?
2: Like how, how do we know that there's liquidity in these exchanges right, the if yeah. they're not as, I mean, liquidity is a bit of a, of a buzzword, I guess. It doesn't yeah. necessarily describe what actual liquidity is. But like, how do we know that there's going to be order flow?
0: Yeah. Um, so we know that there is because of kind of how I said last time, the data is open. So the data is open. The protocols are open. Anybody can audit them. So that's like part of what my company does, right, is we pull all this open data we analyze it, we say, how much liquidity is there? Where is it? Um, What form is it in? So the fact that a company can do that just using public data, that's pretty pretty good too. Um, I mean, when we go and we sell our data to companies, we can basically say that we have every single exchange happening on all these platforms, which is really difficult for a data company to be able to say, usually you only get kind of derived metrics. So the data quality is is really good in terms of its granularity. And what that shows is that there, there, is a, there is massive liquidity in the decentralized financial kind of broad ecosystem. It's just that the, the liquidity is extremely um, pocketed or it's dislocated from its, it, it, like each other. So there's massive centralized exchanges that are happening and there's you know massive kind of over-the-counter markets that have formed. And then there's these decentralized protocols um, that have their own decentralized exchanges. And there's some interoperability, um, but there's a lot, and and that's where currently there's a lot of opportunity is kind of like these um, individuals or companies or hedge funds, which kind of serve as the bridge for uh, managing liquidity between these things. Um, But there there is massive liquidity. It's It's just not yet, um kind of like broadly um accessible and you see like these ripple effects through the market where something happens like over here in this one place and then the rest of the market kind of notices um
3: so yeah and how are you uh, quick question Good. um uh i'm curious how far how far do you think blockchain is on a realistic basis in Providing uh, a connection between uh, the various parts of the world in terms of payment systems. Um, I'll qualify that with an example. Like, you know how Drexel, like the Drexel,
0: laid the first transatlantic connection sort of line in banking? How long do you see like blockchain being truly viable
3: in use in that space, if I may ask?
0: Yeah. It's it kind of depends. Um, I think that it, it's uh, it's kind of a hard question to answer because there's many different like ways in which blockchain has has disrupted or is going to disrupt um, and cause these connections. So kind of at just in the very baseline like settlement network um, kind of layer. So the ability to transfer value anywhere in the world and settle it without an intermediary that already exists. Bitcoin invented that. And that has made massive changes that allowed my company to exist. And it allowed us to pay people in Russia, in Africa, in Asia, in the U S in South America, you know, as a company of only like a handful of people um, that let us operate. Right. So, so, and that already exists and there's platforms that, have bounty programs or connect workers or companies um, and just basically use cryptocurrencies as um, the first that I'm aware of platform that lets you just trade anywhere, regardless of who you're trading with or you're sending, sending money to and, and how. Um, so that kind of already exists. Um, it's not necessarily super adopted and like the UIs have been getting cleaned up, so it's more of like a user experience side from that perspective. But the volumes in Nigeria, in Venezuela, in Argentina, and Peru have exploded over the last like few years, especially the last year. Um, I think the, that there's like large premiums being paid by people who are locally transacting um, Bitcoin in Nigeria something to the tune of like 20% premiums for purchasing side. Um, So, and and that's a regime that has come out regulatory um, wise unfavorably towards Bitcoin. So that's kind of like the first answer. And then on the financial services side, that's where it's going to um, take a little bit longer because the, um, so with like this lending and, you know, accessing liquidity and, and all these kind of upper level services that banks have provided. Those, um, as I mentioned before, are kind of being serviced in multi ways. So there's these central companies like BlockFi offering, you know, offering opportunities. Um, and then there's also these decentralized um, protocols that let you do these things, but the, those ones are more expensive and more technically uh, difficult to understand and use. And those are going to be the ones that are only available worldwide, you know, not caring about who you are. Um, you know, BlockFi is not going to let somebody from Nigeria or from Argentina open a bank account today or a, an account with them today and start you know, using their services. But those people can use a decentralized exchange or they can use a decentralized lending market. So the in terms of the timeline where we are, we are at the stage of the first application layers being built, basically. This is kind of like the stage in the internet bubble where the internet had been built. People realized that anybody could just access anything online as long as there was an application built for it. There was all these companies that came into the space and tons of interest. That's kind of where we are right now in, in terms of decentralized Applications is like the f- the first the first iteration of applications have all been built and are being worked on now, and then there's going to be massive improvements in terms of um, knowledge and um, security and um, you know usability um, on that side.
3: Hi Nick, just to follow up on that. Uh, you mentioned the example of uh, trading volume boom in Nigeria, uh, Venezuela, Argentina, and Peru. I noticed that they're really uh, like a very crippling economy. Aside from having like a weak economy or maybe an unresponsive government, uh, what's going to motivate more people to, you know, to hop on the bus, to participate in the, in the blockchain movement?
0: Yeah. So... The reason why those countries that I mentioned are specifically um, extreme or seeing extreme interest is because they're dealing with the same problems as everybody to 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 the extremes. So any place where you're seeing inflation at a massive level verging on hyperinflation, um, it's extremely salient to anybody who's grown up in a regime like that or is living in one that you need a way to store your your wealth, right? Like you work for your life, and the idea is that you you need to, a way to preserve that so that you can then do larger things like purchase a home and you know pay for a medical bill and send your kids to college and stuff. And so if your if your currency or the the only legal mechanism of storing your value is in the fiat currency issued by your government, um, and they print you know, 100% a year, then after a handful of years, your money looks like it's, you know, back to square one. So in, in, in countries experiencing massive inflation, where every week, it's noticeable that their wage purchases less and less groceries. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's just obvious, and everybody's looking for something to store their value in. So Traditionally, people have tried to get their hands on U.S. dollars, um, but with the M1 supply in the U.S. basically exploding over 2020, and for those of you who um, haven't heard of Michael Saylor, he's a he's the CEO of a company called MicroStrategy, which recently put their um, their balance sheet, the company balance sheet, into Bitcoin. He's he's articulated this point a number of times, which is that. The the cost of capital, if even if you're a, in the U.S., you know you know a working um, financial system, the cost of capital is now like twenty something percent. It used to be pretty fine to if you're operating a profitable business, you know, deal with the fact that your your capital basically stays the same if you put it in treasury. You know, you put in a treasury ten year treasury note and you make three percent probably lose a little more than 3% inflation, but it comes out to around even. So you're at least you're kind of stacking up wealth as you make money and keep operating. But if your money is losing 15 to 20% a year, um, you're going to look for a way to, uh, you know, put it in something that doesn't lose its value. Um, So, so from that perspective, it's extremely, um, it, just looking for something that stores wealth and has liquidity and has you know, properties that let you um, transact with it or div- divide it, all these properties that Bitcoin and other cryptos have, um, that's just very attractive to anybody who wants to store value. And we're in this eco- macroeconomic land- landscape where there is, is no like safe parking spot like there used to be. Where basically the go-to was everybody could just individuals could just hold dollars, companies could just hold treasury notes, and it was kind of easy.
1: Yeah, and with all the money that all the money that we're printing in the U.S., well, that's interesting what you're saying. That uh, so not only is the financial system you question, now even the dollar as a as a reference currency at some point might be because uh, we're printing. We're, we're, the market is a wash with liquidity, which is probably why the stock market is so high, and it doesn't represent. Uh, eesh, okay, yeah. I just yeah, want basically saying asset protection. Go I ahead. I want
0: to get your like opinion on something, Nick. Uh, so, like, what do you think is the best way to like moving forward to kind of make blockchain understandable and like usable for like all developers? Because nowadays you see people with like. Crypto saying like Dogecoin to the moon and stuff like that, but I feel like they don't really understand the tech or backing behind it. So, yeah, that's a good question. So first, it's just on Dogecoin. It's a great meme, but um, security wise, it uses something called like um, I forget what the technical term is. It's like proof of ancillary, proof of auxiliary or something, it basically uses Litecoin to secure it. So it just proves that there was proof of work happening on a different chain and then basically double uses that. So it makes it economically more viable to attack that base network to try and double spend on both. So security wise is an issue for Dogecoin. Um, Distribution of funds holding and admission schedule in terms of inflation are also problems for holding Dogecoin. So. You're completely right in terms of um, that not necessarily being a super viable option, um, which makes education extremely key um, and also really difficult because it's super technical. And now that people get to make decisions rather than just having a single currency and like a handful of you know licensed banks that they can operate with, they basically weren't making any decisions for themselves, right? the regulators basically told them what markets they could operate in, which, which ones they couldn't, whether they were smart enough to make, you know, a VC investment or not for, by accrediting them. Um, so now people can make their own decisions. Um, and it's, there's going to be a lot of disinformation out there because there's, you know, financial incentive to try and get people to buy your token or to, um, you know, buy the token that you hold. Um, so it's, it's a big problem and I just think that there's no like silver bullet for it. Um, it would be good if it started being, um, you know, picked up in the curriculum at, um, at you know, not just colleges, but in, in high school. Um, I think we just need, we, we kind of need more like educational reform in general. Like there should be some personal finance that everybody school learns i would have benefited from that um and just kind of learn about these concepts generally and familiarize people with it but nobody's going to be an expert in in, not everybody at least is going to be an expert in crypto it's just too interdisciplinary too complicated just like economics was beforehand you know like people went to finance and learned about finance and learned about economics because it's super complicated as is so crypto is no different than that it's just new more complicated and so on.
2: I have a quick question.
1: Um, So as like Bitcoin cryptocurrencies are becoming like more and more popular, especially over the past few years, I'm curious like what you think the biggest like technology or security concerns are and how you see the regulatory landscape changing um, over time.
2: Yeah.
0: That's a great question. Really broad, hits on a lot of, um, also kind of hits on a lot of Ben's questions that you, you messaged me. Um, so maybe first it's important to talk about the regulatory landscape um, just in general. Um, so within the U S which is one of the most complicated financial and economic like regulatory regimes, there's a massive amount of overlap jurisdictional overlap between um, different departments, basically. So there's, you know, if, if, if you think about, you know, there's the IRS, there's FINRA, there's the OCC, there's the SEC, there's the CFTC, um, there's all these state level organizations, um, there's all these banking specific organizations, and all of their jurisdictions slightly overlap with each other. Um, and then Cryptocurrency comes along and it's, it's hard to even just define, you know, what Bitcoin is, you know, the IRS taxes it like property. Um, The SEC gets involved with cryptocurrency cases. Um, The CFTC does the, you know, FINRA decides whether or not like um, different banking transmission laws are going to have to apply to it and how they apply to businesses that interact with these products. So it's just massively complicated. Um, it's a really difficult space to, to navigate from a compliance and legal perspective within the U S. Um, and other, other countries don't necessarily use the same framework as us. So in, you know, in Canada, for example, there is no kind of like SEC, CFTC differentiation on the regulatory side. Um, all the markets are kind of, you know, managed by just the different provisional or, um, province kind of level, uh, regulatory bodies. Um, and in other places like, you know, a lot of the islands, smaller islands and, um, smaller European countries, there's like a single monetary authority that does everything. Um, so that's a super important thing to just kind of understand because the, and, and it matters who, which department is making comments or making action, um, within the U S you know, it's with regard like when the SEC makes a decision or the CFTC makes a decision or FINRA makes a decision or a statement, um, you have to kind of contextualize it with what their role is within the regulatory framework. Um, so I'll, st- I'll stop at that, make sure that there's no questions and then um, we can talk more about like the disruption or where it's going.
2: Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then,
1: so for like cryptocurrencies, do you think different countries are going to have like different regulations for it as well, like uh, the U.S. has, as compared to like uh, other securities?
0: Yeah, and I think within countries there's going to be um, not consistent regulation. I mean, within the U.S., it's already really different depending on what state you live in um, or what state you're domiciled in. the The way that Wyoming um, treats and understands cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency related businesses is very different than New York or Colorado or wherever. Um, we already have banks, um, virtual currency businesses that have gotten banking licenses in, in states like, um, Wyoming. And then we have things like the bit license in New York, which requires an extra essentially massive level of, um, uh, regulatory compliance for any, um, business operating in, in, uh, New York. So it, it depends a lot on what state you're in. Um, and there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of regulations which have implications for businesses that don't have implications for individuals as well. Um, a lot of the like money transmitter, um, obligations, that you know, for anti-terrorist financing and anti-money laundering that apply to a business that's accepting or selling um, cryptocurrencies is going to be really different than you know those of us who use it more like a Venmo. Um, yeah, it's 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 also just going to be changing the way that these regulators um, operate in a lot of ways um, and what I've seen from kind of being involved in the industry and working with these regulators is um, the ones who are more, you know, just interested in understanding it and um, kind of like interested in innovation rather than just um, kind of rules-based and super strict and not really caring about what they're regulating, just looking through the lens of their existing frameworks, those ones end up taking on more responsibility. So the CFTC is probably more prominent within the industry for those businesses operating within the industry than the SEC, um, even though it might be counterintuitive in a lot of ways. Um, So I don't know, there's kind of a lot there and it's, I don't know if I can give like a non-complicated answer, but
1: we can, yeah. Yeah, and to your point, uh, Nick, I mean, when you look at uh, leigh in terms of what she does and what she was doing before it feels that it's the same people, right? They're recycling the same people throughout various administrations, from Yellen to the previous one, to Benaki, and they used to work together. So I I feel that, and they missed completely 2008. Uh, And this is when, you know, blockchain start to come around. So I don't know, but at the same time, they've got the power today. So they're not gonna let it go that easily, but it feels to me like something is chipping away at this entire system. And I don't think we, people, you know, it's even tough to come up with a question because you say, well, I'm sorry, what's really going on? Is my bank account say everything is okay? Nothing is changing, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, something is chipping away and we better be aware of what it is. Especially, you know, these guys and and Niren, I mean, they're gonna be looking for jobs. In that industry, Uh, it's like you. um, I guess it happens before several times before with the cycle change, and if you don't change with it, right, you're gonna you get left behind. Um, You know, like people still driving, not driving an electric electric car, right? If well, it's never gonna work. I don't know. They're gonna do away with the regular car eventually. I mean, it's stuff it's happening, it's changing very quickly, here. and I don't know if we're educating enough. Uh, frankly, when I look at the curriculums and look at everything else, it's I the same ask, thing. Yes. I wanted to
3: ask a question, sort of on that idea of education. Um, and quickly here, Nick, courtesy of your time, um, kind of in, fin- in traditional traditional finance, we you know we've seen like. We've seen PhDs and practitioners come out with literature that's then sort of applied at banks and institutions, you know, factor modeling, Markowitz optimization, stuff like that, right? I feel like on the block, on, on sort of the crypto and the blockchain side, right, of things, it's coming more from, instead of coming from the academics into practice, it's coming from practice into academics. Um, at one point Great does, cases. at one point does that dynamic change? And kind of in your your opinion, right? If you have a bunch of PhDs, you know, sitting around top institutions studying these things, um, is that going to be able to convince the public and or the regulator and or the banks, right? That this stuff is indeed okay to be using on an everyday basis, right? Um, And to that, is it going to make it more accessible, right? I feel like When factor modeling first came out, when they first won the Peace Prize, everyone's like, oh my God, right? And now it's kind of like, People used it for 10 years, and now they're kind of going away with it. And machine learning from the academics is now making its way in. this NLP stuff is start, starting to make its way into the industry. Um, is that dynamic gonna be changing from instead of the actual private companies developing and researching right, to now academics researching the, and, and kind of filtering that into the, the, the pipeline? If that kind of question kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, the question makes sense. Um, so, y- so the, this observation that the industry and like kind of the engineering side has driven the scientific and research side um, is really interesting. So you see like a lot of just developments happening on either open source or through dev companies like Electric Coin Company or mm-hmm. IOHK. They publish papers um, as they're engineering. Basically, they're coming up with new cryptographic um, functions that they just require for their protocols. Um, So it's driven a ton of innovation and that innovation has required basically documentation. And that's where that research comes in. Um, We do also see really high quality institutions um, starting to, I mean, you guys have a blockchain course there, right? That Hank teaches Um, MIT is massively involved in um, producing research. I've interacted with a bunch of universities on, um either research proposals um or just talked with uh economics professors at a lot of research universities that are spending all of their individual effort on um, researching this space so it is it is um it is now like being done basically at at the top level research or or entities Um, uh I kind of forget the the other part of the question that I had something to say. Um.
3: I guess in essence, when are, are the banks? I guess as that continues to develop, right, or even in the short in the short in the short term, where we've seen the MITs and then the Caltechs and the Georgia Techs, right, do all this research. Are the banks being receptive to it? Or are they kind of holding it back and saying, we need more time to understand it, et cetera, et cetera, or is it kind of instantaneously being, you know, okay, this makes sense. Let's go ahead and deploy right to our clientele.
0: Yeah, it, I think it's, it, um, for banks themselves, um, it's kind of complicated. And I think they have like a lot of their own internal kind of research departments and, at a high like decision level they're kind of decide like a lot of it kind of happens top down in those organizations and um you know they might they probably don't necessarily know exactly how they're going to get involved um so a lot of them have spun up like research into using blockchain basically as an intranet for their own infrastructure and stuff like that so and then some of them are sorry
3: No, go ahead. I apologize.
0: And then some of them are researching more from like a custody side and like, how do I, um, so there, there, it kind of goes in lots of different directions. So it kind of depends institution by institution. Um, but at a regulatory level, there is, um, interest from the regulators in, uh, what academia or academia says and what they're doing. And, um, I have been involved in a handful of conversations and projects where regulators um, basically want to work like in, in, um, like in sync with universities and companies operating within the space. And there's a lot of um, research efforts that kind of involve universities with enforcement departments um, to make sure that w- what they're doing actually makes sense um so there's kind of like this outsourcing of the technical understanding to universities to some degree from uh government
3: so at least on the banking side of things right would you say that from a product life cycle perspective this is still when i say this it's more i'm referring to sort of the implementation and kind of like the widespread usage of it is it more it's we're still in kind of that proof of concept phase.
0: Um, maybe from the bank's perspective. Yeah. From the bank's but perspective, kind of as kind of like as a baseline settlement thing, it's like already happening. Yeah. And yeah. then it's like, do the banks jump on board Do the banks try and compete. And they're that exactly from their perspective, it's kind of like, okay, here's this new thing that exists. Um, how do we, what, you know, what do we do with it? Do we do anything
1: with it? Um, and so on.
3: Understood. Um, Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. But you know what, uh, uh First of all, you know, I agree here with uh, what you're saying. Is that obviously you know, the, the heads of various banks have to understand what's actually going on. Okay, that's one. But then at the end of the day, but their business model maybe doesn't lend themselves to this type of business, right? It's it's uh, I own your data. What blockchain is everything is decentralized. How could they unless you keep the name but you change everybody inside and it's not the same bank anymore. I mean, I, I'm sure they try to understand the technology. I mean, if they do understand, they're going to realize, oops, I mean, that means that, you know, they, we, we, you know everybody owns their data, own their money, everything yeah. else. And we're not, not designed, we were not designed for this originally.
0: Yeah, they're basically going to have to realize that um, they're going to be competing against this or they're going to have to completely adapt. And and exactly just to change their entire
1: business model around it. That's a huge undertaking for institutions that have been around for like hundreds of years, right? Okay, stop making uh, combustion cars, start to make electrical cars. Okay, well, that's what what the Cadillac did, right? So, and Ford. The only thing is, uh, if you want to go cross country, good luck. Uh, There is no uh, supercharger like with Tesla. So you get 30 miles an hour as opposed to Tesla gives you 256 miles an hour. So yeah, we've got electric cars, but you know, you really can't do much with it.
0: But, and I think with kind of like a lot of massive disruptive innovations, this is like the way that you see it, right? Is somebody understands it and um, uses or adopts the technology from outside the industry that it's disrupting. So like, you know, Tesla came along as a new company. It wasn't like General Motors that yes, know, exactly. produced a Tesla line, and then not. You know, and then Tesla kind of front runs everything, and then eventually some of the the legacy um, adopts and innovates. Um, but that's kind of with every innovation is like there's the new players who completely understand it and show this new vertical, and then the old players
1: potentially,
2: potentially, uh, yeah.
1: yeah. And so that's i what rather my student like, go work for Tesla. Than, uh, than uh, GM or Ford, then yeah. hopefully they get it. And if they don't get it, oops, you know, they're going to be
0: interesting. Hey, Nick.
1: Hey.
0: Hi. Um, I was sorry. Sorry, I a, was a little bit late into the meeting, but um, I don't know if you touched on this already, but I would very much like your insights on those transaction speed for blockchain, because I don't know if I understand correctly. like, At the current speed, like it's not on the same level as our need for transactions, only like less than 10 transactions per second. So what are your insights on like the limitation of the transaction speed as for the viability for this technology? So that's a good question. Um, So the transaction speed, it, it kind of depends what you're comparing it to, because When you send a venmo and it almost instantaneously shows up on your friend's screen it's not like the entire transaction has actually all cleared and settled um and you know what what you're sending is uh you know the person knows that it's coming but it has still has to clear through the banks and the um, fintech companies right so it's kind of unfair in some degrees the comparison that many people make between um, like a, a Venmo or a PayPal versus um, Bitcoin or a credit card company versus Bitcoin, because there's kind of this um, massive process happening in the background um, that deals with the clearing and settling. So Bitcoin kind of acts as a settlement layer. And once it's confirmed, it's confirmed. Um, so there's that. And then if you think about Bitcoin acting as the settlement layer in, I guess, opposition to this, um, to this layer of clearing houses and um, banks that are settling between each other, um, then you can also think of, instead of these FinTech companies like Venmo and PayPal operating on top of them that allow these instantaneous like user um, things, there's also things built on top of blockchain. So there's second layer solutions. So on Bitcoin, there's something called Lightning. Um, there's also something called Liquid. But Lightning basically lets you do that instantaneous transaction, and then it settles onto the Bitcoin uh, blockchain. So in a lot of ways, blockchain will enable faster transactions on the settlement side and initially a lot slower Um, transactions from like the user side um, until those L2s or those layer two solutions are fully kind of built out. um, And until like blockchain gets actually adopted as a settlement layer um, by other applications. I don't know if that's the most clear way I could have verbalized that answer, but um, there's kind of like a uh, incongruent comparison that, that happens a lot of the time with transaction speed. And then Bitcoin is like the slowest blockchain of all of them. It's just the most secure but slow and heavy. So there's a lot of blockchains that do have um, m- much faster confirmation speeds and, and settlement and stuff, but there's a trade-off there because it's you know more like sending a bank wire that could get reversed or
1: there's an issue with it or something. Great uh if there's any more questions for nick nick thanks uh, thanks a lot uh for your time um that gets me thinking about uh we need uh, we need more, more of these projects somehow to uh, to funnel through the through the curriculum because there's a lot of things going on yeah obviously
0: yeah i just had super
1: go. fun thank you guys Yeah, michael oh yeah go ahead
0: uh, so relating to the article that uh, Professor Zoro sent, like, what's your opinion on these big companies um, using debt to finance like cryptocurrency purchases? Like you have in, in the article, they're talking about MicroStrategy issuing debt to purchase like $1 billion in Bitcoin. Like, what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, so it's 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 a less... Um obvious than just putting, you know, your existing funds on the balance sheet, raising debt. Um, I think if you just think about kind of like the macro perspective that we laid out with, um, you know, fiat currency debasing very quickly and Bitcoin being a potential store of wealth, if that thesis you're hundred percent bought on it, then issuing debt to buy Bitcoin is like free money. So I understand why companies are doing that. Um, you know, that's an assessment that they they individually have to make. And obviously most companies are on the end of not even wanting to touch Bitcoin. And then, uh, Michael Saylor has 95% of his balance sheet on it and is issuing debt to constantly buy billions more. So, um, some people are going to see that as reckless. Some people are going to see companies that don't put anything on their balance sheet, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency on their balance sheet as also reckless, um, Probably something in the middle makes more sense, um, you know. That that that's, I guess, my take. But at the same time, like he's issuing debt for these convertible notes, right? That's allowing he's he's kind of like giving the opportunity for other people to um, get skin in the game. It's not like just him going out taking on, you know, spending all of his student loans on Bitcoin.
1: It's a slightly different that's scenario, right? yeah. Okay, that was interesting, a finale here. Nick, Director of Research at Inca Digital. Thank you very much for your time here. Thanks so much, Uh, Pat. Thanks, guys. uh, And uh, next time we meet, uh, talk about uh, where they are with their projects because we're getting close to the end of the semester. Thanks again. Take care, guys. Okay,
3: bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.